Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place where you'll find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapter 8 of Emily of New Moon by L. M. Montgomery. In the last chapter, Emily learnt all about the New Moon Farm and the mysteries of the buildings nearby. This chapter will be one of school, teasing, and new friendships. First, let's make sure we're as comfortable as we can be and ready to fall asleep. If you haven't already, find a place to be cosy, be it in a chair, your bed, or elsewhere and rest your body in whatever way feels most relaxed. Sitting up, laying down, eyes open or eyes closed. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So while you're on your own path to sleep, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. And now, let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 8 Trial by Fire Aunt Elizabeth drove Emily to school the next morning. Aunt Laura had thought that, since there was only a month before vacation, it was not worthwhile for Emily to start school. But Aunt Elizabeth did not yet feel comfortable with a small niece skipping around New Moon, poking into everything insatiably and was resolved that Emily must go to school to get her out of the way. Emily herself, always avid for new experiences, was quite keen to go, but for all that, she was seething with rebellion as they drove along. Aunt Elizabeth had produced a terrible gingham apron and an equally terrible gingham sunbonnet from somewhere in the new moon garret, and made Emily put them on. The apron was a long, sack-like garment, high in the neck, with sleeves. Those sleeves were the crowning indignity. Emily had never seen any little girl wearing an apron with sleeves. She rebelled to the point of tears over wearing it 
but Aunt Elizabeth was not going to have any nonsense. Emily saw the Murray look then, and when she saw it, she buttoned her rebellious feelings tightly up in her soul and let Aunt Elizabeth put the apron on her. It was one of your mother's aprons when she was a little girl, Emily, said Aunt Laura comfortingly and rather sentimentally. Then, said Emily, uncomforted and unsentimental, I don't wonder she ran away with father when she grew up. Aunt Elizabeth finished buttoning the apron and gave Emily a none too gentle push away from her. Put on your sunbonnet, she ordered. Oh, please, Aunt Elizabeth, don't make me wear the horrid thing. Aunt Elizabeth, wasting no further words, picked up the bonnet and tied it to Emily's head. Emily had to yield, but from the depths of the sunbonnet issued a voice, defiant though tremulous. Anyway, Aunt Elizabeth, you can't boss God, it said. Aunt Elizabeth was too cross to speak all the way to the schoolhouse. She introduced Emily to Miss Brownell and drove away. School was already in, so Emily hung her sunbonnet on the porch nail and went to the desk Miss Brownell assigned her. Miss Brownell had the reputation in Blairwater of being a fine teacher due mainly to the fact that she was a strict disciplinarian and kept excellent order. She was a thin, middle-aged person with a colourless face, prominent teeth, most of which she showed when she laughed, and cold, watchful grey eyes, colder even than Aunt Ruth's. Emily felt as if those merciless, agate eyes saw clean through her to the core of her sensitive little soul. Emily could be fearless enough on occasion, but in the presence of a nature which she instinctively felt to be hostile to hers, she shrank away in something that was more repulsion than fear. She was a target for curious glances all the morning. The Blairwater School was large, and there was at least twenty little girls of about her own age. Emily looked back curiously at them all, and thought the way they whispered to each other behind hands and books when they looked at her very ill-mannered. She felt suddenly unhappy and homesick and lonesome. She wanted her father and her old home and the dear things she loved. The new moon girl is crying, whispered a black-eyed girl across the aisle, and then came a cruel little giggle. What is the matter with you, Emily? said Miss Brownell. Suddenly and accusingly, Emily was silent. 
She could not tell Miss Brownell what the matter was, especially when Miss Brownell used such a tone. When I ask one of my pupils a question, Emily, I am accustomed to having an answer. Why are you crying? There was another giggle from across the aisle. Emily lifted miserable eyes and in her extremity fell back on a phrase of her father's. It is a matter that concerns only myself, she said. A red spot suddenly appeared in Miss Brownell's sallow cheek. Her eyes gleamed with cold fire. You will remain in during recess as a punishment for your impertinence, she said, but she left Emily alone the rest of the day. Emily did not mind in the least staying in at recess, for, acutely sensitive to her environment as she was, she realised that, for some reason she could not fathom, the atmosphere of the school was antagonistic. The glances cast at her were not only curious, but ill-natured. She did not want to go out to the playground with those girls. She did not want to go to school in Blairwater. But she would not cry any more. She sat erect and kept her eyes on her book. Suddenly, a soft, malignant hiss came from across the aisle. Miss Pretty, Miss Pretty. Emily looked across at the girl. Large, steady, purplish grey eyes gazed into beady, twinkling black ones. Gazed unquailingly, with something in them that cowed and compelled. The black eyes wavered and fell, their owner covering her retreat with another giggle and toss of her short braid of hair. I can master her, thought Emily, with a thrill of triumph. But there is strength in numbers, and at noon hour, Emily found herself standing alone on the playground facing a crowd of unfriendly faces. Children can be the most cruel creatures alive. They have the herd instinct of prejudice against any outsider, and they are merciless in its indulgence. Emily was a stranger, and one of the proud Murrays, two counts against her, and there was about her Small and ginghamed and sun-bonneted as she was, a certain reserve and dignity and fineness that they resented. And they resented the level way she looked at them, with that disdainful face under cloudy black hair, instead of being shy and drooping as became an interloper on probation. You are a proud one, said Black Eyes. Oh, my, you may have buttoned boots, but you are living on charity. 
Emily had not wanted to put on the buttoned boots. She wanted to go barefoot, as she had always done in summer. But Aunt Elizabeth had told her that no child from New Moon had ever gone barefoot to school. Oh, just look at the baby apron, laughed another girl with a head of chestnut curls. Now Emily flushed. This was indeed the vulnerable point in her armour. Delighted at her success in drawing blood, the curled one tried again. Is that your grandmother's sunbonnet? There was a chorus of giggles. Oh, she wears a sunbonnet to save her complexion, said a bigger girl. That's the Murray pride. The Murrays are rotten with pride, my mother says. You're awful ugly, said a fat, squat little miss, nearly as broad as she was long. Your ears look like a cat's. You needn't be so proud, said Black Eyes. Your kitchen ceiling isn't plastered even. And your cousin Jimmy is an idiot, said Chestnut Curls. He isn't, cried Emily. He has more sense than any of you. You can say what you like about me, but you are not going to insult my family. If you say one more word about them, I'll look you over with the evil eye. Nobody understood what this threat meant, but that made it all the more effective. It produced a brief silence, then the baiting began again in a different form. Can you sing? asked a thin, freckled girl, who yet contrived to be very pretty in spite of thinness and freckles. No, said Emily. Can you dance? No. Can you sew? No. Can you cook? No. Can you knit lace? No. Can you crochet? No. Then what can you do? said the freckled one in a contemptuous tone. I can write poetry, said Emily, without in the least meaning to say it. But at that instant, she knew she could write poetry. And with this queer, unreasonable conviction came the flash. Right there, surrounded by hostility and suspicion, fighting alone for her standing without backing or advantage, came the wonderful moment when soul seemed to cast aside the bonds of flesh and spring upwards to the stars. The rapture and delight on Emily's face amazed and enraged her foes. They thought it a manifestation of Murray pride in an uncommon accomplishment. You lie, said Black Eyes bluntly. A star does not lie, 
retorted Emily. The flash was gone, but its uplift remained. She looked them all over with a cool detachment that quelled them temporarily. Why don't you like me? she asked directly. There was no reply. Emily looked straight at Chestnut Curls and repeated her question. Chestnut Curls felt herself compelled to answer it. Because you ain't a bit like us, she muttered. I wouldn't want to be, said Emily scornfully. Oh my, you are one of the chosen people, mocked Black Eyes, retorted Emily. She walked away to the schoolhouse, conqueror in that battle. But the forces against her were not so easily cowed. There was much whispering and plotting after she had gone in, a conference with some of the boys, and a handing over of a bedizened pencil and chews of gum for value received. An agreeable sense of victory and the afterglow of the flash carried Emily through the afternoon, in spite of the fact that Miss Brownell ridiculed her for her mistakes in spelling. Miss Brownell was very fond of ridiculing her pupils. All the girls in the class giggled, except the one who had not been there in the morning, and was consequently at the tail. Emily had been wondering who she was. She was as unlike the rest of the girls as Emily herself, but in a totally different style. She was tall, oddly dressed in an overlong dress of faded, striped print and barefooted. Her thick hair, cut short, fluffed out all around her head in a bushy wave that seemed in a brilliant spun gold, and her glowing eyes were of a brown so light and translucent as to be almost amber. Her mouth was large, and she had a saucy, pronounced chin. Pretty she might not be called, but her face was so vivid and mobile that Emily could not drag her fascinated eyes from it and she was the only girl in the class who did not, sometimes through the lesson, get a bark of sarcasm from Miss Brownell, though she made as many mistakes as the others. At recess, one of the girls came up to Emily with a box in her hand. Emily knew that she was Rhoda Stewart, and thought her very pretty and sweet. Rhoda had been in the crowd around her at the noon hour, but she had not said anything. She was dressed in a crispy pink gingham. She had smooth, lustrous braids of sugar-brown hair, big blue eyes, a rosebud mouth, doll-like features, and a sweet voice. If Miss Brownell could be said to have a favourite, it was Rhoda Stewart, and she seemed generally popular 
in her own set and much petted by the older girls. Here is a present for you, she said sweetly. Emily took the box unsuspectingly. Rhoda's smile would have disarmed any suspicion. For a moment, Emily was happily anticipant as she removed the cover. Then, with a shriek, she flung the box from her and stood pale and trembling from head to foot. There was a snake in the box, whether dead or alive, she did not know and did not care. For any snake, Emily had a horror and repulsion she could not overcome. The very sight of one almost paralysed her. A chorus of giggles ran around the porch. Before I'd be so scared of an old dead snake, scoffed Black Eyes. Can you write poetry about that, giggled Chestnut Curls. I hate you, I hate you, cried Emily. You are mean, hateful girls. Calling names isn't ladylike, said the freckled one. I thought a Murray would be too grand for that. If you come to school tomorrow, Miss Starr, said Black Eyes deliberately, we are going to take the snake and put it around your neck. Let me see you do it, cried a clear, ringing voice. Into their midst, with a bound, came the girl with the amber eyes and short hair. Just let me see you do it, Jenny Strang. This isn't any of your business, Isla Burnley, muttered Jenny sullenly. Oh, isn't it? Don't you sass me, piggy eyes. Isla walked up to the retreating Jenny and shook a sunburned fist in her face. If I catch you teasing Emily Starr tomorrow with that snake again, I'll take it by the tail and take you by your tail and slash you across the face with it. Mind that, piggy eyes. Now you go and pick up the precious snake of yours and throw it down on the ash pile. Jenny actually went and did it. Isla faced the others. Clear out, all of you, and leave the new moon girl alone after this, she said. If I hear any more meddling and sneaking, I'll slit your throats and rip out your hearts and tear your eyes out. Yes, and I'll cut off your ears and wear them pinned on my dress. Cowed by these ferocious threats, or by something in Isla's personality, Emily's persecutors drifted away. Isla turned to Emily. Don't mind them, she said contemptuously. They're jealous of you, that's all. Jealous because you live at New Moon and ride in a fringed top buggy and wear buttoned boots. You smack their mugs if they give you any more of their jaw. 
Isla vaulted the fence and tore off into the maple bush without another glance at Emily. Only Rhoda Stewart remained. Emily, I'm awfully sorry, she said, rolling her big blue eyes appealingly. I didn't know there was a snake in that box. Cross my heart I didn't. The girls just told me it was a present for you. You're not mad at me, are you? Because I like you. Emily had been mad and hurt and outraged, but this little bit of friendliness melted her instantly. In a moment, she and Rhoda had their arms around each other, parading across the playground. I'm going to ask Miss Brownell to let us sit with each other, said Rhoda. I used to sit with Annie Gregg, but she's moved away. You'd like to sit with me, wouldn't you? I'd love it, said Emily warmly. She was as happy as she had been miserable. Here was the friend of her dreams. Already she worshipped Rhoda. We ought to sit together, said Rhoda importantly. We belong to the two best families in Blairwater. Do you know that if my father had his rights, he would be on the throne of England? England, said Emily, too amazed to be anything but an echo. Yes, we are descended from the kings of Scotland, said Rhoda. So of course we don't associate with everybody. My father keeps store, and I'm taking music lessons. Is your Aunt Elizabeth going to give you music lessons? I don't know. She ought to. She's very rich, isn't she? I don't know, said Emily again. She wished Rhoda would not ask questions. Emily thought it was hardly good manners. But surely a descendant of the Stuart kings ought to know the rules of breeding, if anybody did. She's got an awful temper, hasn't she? asked Rhoda. No, she hasn't, cried Emily. Well, she nearly killed your cousin Jimmy in one of her rages, said Rhoda. That's true, mother told me. Why doesn't your Aunt Laura get married? Has she got a beau? What wages do your Aunt Elizabeth pay your cousin Jimmy? I don't know. Well, said Rhoda, rather disappointedly, I suppose you haven't been in New Moon long enough to find things out, but it must be very difficult from what you've been used to, I guess. Your father was as poor as a church mouse, wasn't he? My father was a very, very rich man, said Emily deliberately. Rhoda stared. I thought he hadn't a cent. Neither had he. But people can be rich without money, 
I don't see how. But anyhow, you'll be rich someday. Your Aunt Elizabeth will likely leave you all her money, Mother says. So I don't care if you are living on charity. I love you, and I'm going to stick up for you. Have you got a view, Emily? No, cried Emily, blushing violently and quite scandalised at the idea. Why, I'm only eleven. Oh, everybody in our class has a view. Mine is Teddy Kent. I shook hands with him after I counted nine stars for nine nights without missing a night. If you do that, the first boy you shake hands with afterwards is to be your view. But it's awfully hard to do. It took me all winter. Teddy wasn't in school that day. He's been sick all June. He's the best-looking boy in Blairwater. You'll have to have a view too, Emily. I won't, declared Emily angrily. I don't know a thing about view, and I won't have one. Rhoda tossed her head. Oh, I suppose you think there's nobody good enough for you, living at New Moon. Well, you won't be able to play clap in and clap out if you haven't a view. Emily knew nothing of the mysteries of clap in and clap out, and didn't care. Anyway, she wasn't going to have a view, and she repeated this in such a decided tone that Rhoda deemed it wise to drop the subject. Emily was rather glad when the bell rang. Miss Brownell granted Rhoda's request quite graciously, and Emily transferred her goods and chattels to Rhoda's desk. Rhoda whispered a good deal during the last hour, and Emily got scolded for it, but did not mind. I'm going to have a birthday party the first week in July, and I'm going to invite you, if your aunts will let you come. I'm not going to have Isla Burnley, though. Don't you like her? No, she's an awful tomboy, and then her father is an infidel. And so she, she always spells God with a little g in her dictation. Miss Brownell scolds her for it, but she does it right along. Miss Brownell won't whip her because she's getting her cap for Dr. Burnley. But Ma says she won't get him because he hates women. I don't think it's a proper to associate with such people. Isla is an awful wild, queer girl and has an awful temper. So has her father. She doesn't chum with anybody. Isn't it ridiculous the way she wears her hair? You ought to have a bang, Emily. They're all the rage, and you'd look well with one because you've such a high forehead.
it would make a real beauty of you. My, but you have lovely hair, and your hands are just lovely. All the Murrays have pretty hands, and you have the sweetest eyes, Emily. Emily had never received so many compliments in her life. Rhoda laid flattery on with a trowel. Her head was quite turned, and she went home from school, determined to ask Aunt Elizabeth to cut her hair in a bang. If it would make a beauty of her, it must be compassed somehow. And she would also ask Aunt Elizabeth if she might wear her Venetian beads to school next day. The other girls may respect me more then, she thought. She was alone from the crossroads, where she had parted company with Rhoda, and she reviewed the events of the day with a feeling that, after all, she had kept the star flag flying, except for a temporary reverse in the matter of the snake. School was very different from what she had expected it to be, but that was the way in life, she had heard Ellen Green say, and you just had to make the best of it. Rhoda was a darling, and there was something about Isla Burnley that one liked, and as for the rest of the girls, Emily got square with them by pretending she saw them all being hanged in a row for frightening her to death with a snake, and felt no more resentment towards them, although some of the things that had been said to her ranked bitterly in her heart for many days. She had no father to tell them to, and no account book to write them out in so she could not exercise them. She had no speedy chance to ask for a bang, for there was company at New Moon, and her aunts were busy getting ready an elaborate supper. But when the preserves were brought on, Emily snatched the opportunity of a lull in the older conversation. Aunt Elizabeth, she said, can I have a bang? Aunt Elizabeth looked at her with disdain. No, she said, I do not approve of bangs, of all the silly fashions that have come in nowadays. Bangs are the silliest. Oh, Aunt Elizabeth, do let me have a bang. It would make a beauty of me. Rhoda said so. It would take a good deal more than a bang to do that, Emily. We will not have bangs at New Moon, except on the molly cows. They are the only creatures that should wear bangs. Aunt Elizabeth smiled triumphantly around the table. Aunt Elizabeth did smile sometimes when she thought she had silenced some small person by exquisite ridicule. Emily understood that it was no use to hope for bangs. Loveliness did not lie that way for her. It was mean of Aunt Elizabeth. Mean. 
she heaved a sigh of disappointment and dismissed the idea for the present. There was something else she wanted to know. Why doesn't Isla Burnley's father believe in God, she said. Because of the trick her mother played him, said Mr. Slade with a chuckle. Mr. Slade was a fat, jolly-looking old man with bushy hair and whiskers. He had already said some things Emily could not understand and which had seemed greatly to embarrass his very ladylike wife. What trick did Isla's mother play? asked Emily, all agog with interest. Now Aunt Laura looked at Aunt Elizabeth, and Aunt Elizabeth looked at Aunt Laura. Then the latter said, Run out and feed the chickens, Emily. Emily rose with dignity. You might just as well tell me that Isla's mother isn't to be talked about, and I would obey you. I understand perfectly what you mean, she said as she left the table.